Sego. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. My guest this week is Dina Gilio Whitaker. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to mention something that we usually don't include in the episode until the very end, and that is that we're on Patreon. If you like the work that we are doing here at Let's Talk Native, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash let's talk native. If you are already a Patreon supporter, I want to take this time to let you know that we greatly appreciate your financial support here at Let's Talk Native. A lot of time and effort goes into producing each episode and every little bit helps. So thank you all so much. Now, on with the episode. Dina Gilio Whitaker is an author, journalist, lecturer, and adjunct professor of American Indian Studies at California State University at San Marcos. She is also the policy director and senior researcher for the Center for World Indigenous Studies. Much of her work is focused on Native American studies, decolonization, and environmental justice. Her most recent book, As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock, was released in 2019. She is also the co-author of All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans, along with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Dina is a descendant member of the Colville Confederated Tribes, but makes her home in the lands of the Ahashiman Nation in what is now known as Southern California. Dina Julio Whitaker, it is uh, great to have you join me on my uh, my program. I want to welcome you to Let's Talk Native, but I'm not going to probably tap into some of the areas that you are most known for. You know, some of your environmental justice work. Um, obviously, you, you co-authored the uh, the book with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, um, but I wanted to, to use some of your thoughts on, or, or to tap into some of your thoughts on. One of the things that I'm confronted with as I take on some of the the mascot issue, especially with uh, with high schools, and one of the courses of action that these schools are trying to take to justify keeping these native mascots, this appropriation, this mockery, is um, is to suggest that they will make a bigger commitment to teach native history in school. But but even the idea of presenting of, of frankly white people presenting native history and again defining us even further um, as objects of the past as 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 a people who no longer exist is a problem so I mean give me your thoughts on that kind of rationale or that kind of justification that these schools are trying to make in just to keep their their mascots by offering this up as some sort of token gesture well it's kind of bs I mean you know it's it's pretty disingenuous. Um, because it's transparent, and that's as you're implying here that they want to do these tokenistic gestures in order to, in order to avoid making any kind of real meaningful systemic change um, in the, the the education system's curriculum, and um, and I imagine, and I I mean I don't have any hard data where these kinds of um, arguments are coming from, I imagine it's pretty, you know, particularly pervasive there. Um, but, and, and probably in the Midwest, I mean, we can predict, 
some of the, you know, the very conservative areas where people are resistant to change and really um, addicted to their their settler narratives about things. Um, because let's face it, these kinds of conversations, you know, force people to have to look at some really uncomfortable uh, histories and have uncomfortable conversations. And, and it implicates them, it implicates their ancestors, it implicates um, what it means to be settlers on stolen land. Well, it, it, it implicates their, their very existence because much of the, the wealth that the, the current generations enjoy, much of, much of that affluence is tied directly to, uh, to the fact that they are, they, a, a country was built, an economy was built on stolen land and, and, and slavery. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but the thing is, is like event, you know, you can't, the trains left the station, <laughs> you know, on this, like you can, oh, you can run, but you can't hide from this. And it's, it's inevitable that the, that places will be called out and will be forced to change. Now, what kind of, how uh, far they actually change, right? And how meaningful that change will actually be remains to be seen but well and uh, how much know, uh how much kicking and screaming will, will go along with with being forced to change i mean look we right, have states right. that are mandating change we have oftentimes even when a school board um votes in a majority to change a, a mascot the repercussions within a community can sometimes be you know pretty vitriolic but you know i i come back to to some of the the basics associated with the mascot issue and much of it is is tied to the mis the the inaccurate representation that they use for for not only their imagery but even the wording that they use whether they use racial slurs like redskin or warrior or brave or whatever they're using um or the imagery oftentimes it's completely disconnected to the to the people who either are or were indigenous to the area. In fact, you know, I've been fighting my old high school. I went to school in Cambridge, New York. That's where I graduated from high school. And they call themselves the Cambridge Indians. And they, they frankly right now are, are actually in a spot where the New York uh, Department of Education um, made them withdraw a, um, a resolution to reinstate the mascot after it was, uh, it was retired. But... When you ask somebody in Cambridge, well, who are these Indians that you're talking about? They can't even tell you. They can't. Uh, do, do they mean Mohawks or Mohican or Hurons or Pequots? They can't even tell you. So when we hear some of this, well, we're only doing it to honor you. When they haven't even bothered learning who the native people are that they're claiming to uh, to uh, you know appropriate for their own identities, they they haven't yeah. even gone that far. Or and and of course the imagery. We know that it's always uh, oftentimes been this, this Plains Indian headdress that didn't matter where in the country uh, they, they used it. That's what they started with. Now there's been a little bit more sensitivity. If you look on the East Coast, you will find the same Eastern Woodland native from the you know late 18th century, that imagery used by 30 schools up and down the Eastern Seaboard. So... They, they still use these very stereotypical imageries um, for these mascots without any sense for who we were. Uh, and that doesn't even get to, to addressing who we are. Well, you know, it's just, it's, 
it's so they're these are dinosaurs these these are the people who are going kicking and screaming and the their their days are numbered look what happened to dan snyder <laughs> after all those years i will never change the name you can print right? that in capital so yeah caps oh, whatever, I, yeah. You, can, you can't help but but laugh and love it that he has such egg on his face about that i love that that he is you know he was so mean and so resistant to that all of those years and finally social pressure made him buckle well and financial and that, pressure <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's right. And, you know, all of those things combined, whatever it was, it was still pressure in the social arena that forced him to change. At some point, it becomes untenable. Like if if the trains left the station and the momentum is heading in a certain direction and people are finally saying, you know, we can't you know, we have to start listening. We can't we all have to move forward together. And you are in the minority because at this point i i my perception of it is that those kind of people are in the minority it's it's really not acceptable you know and when you um you know talk about why is it i mean for me the most the most powerful argument is that why is it acceptable to have the image of a debt of an indian head in some kind of headdress, a disembodied Indian that is a, a you know represents an, an image of a of a dead, extinct, you know, person or culture. Why is that acceptable? But and to have an, a name like the Redskins or the Braves or the 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 Warriors with a you know a related native um, imagery. But it's not acceptable to have a team called the Sambos. When you put it that way, then people like there's there's nowhere to go with that conversation. Well, I asked the question, if a school and in fact, I, I posted this recently on Facebook, is that if a school, for whatever reason, decided they wanted to honor black people with their native mascot or, or, or with their school mascot, what would they call them? And, and, and what and what imagery would they use? I mean, and if you. Find that an uncomfortable question, then you have to understand what's wrong with using native people for a mascot. You know, the other thing I, I, I wanted to mention was it's funny how many schools there were who relied on the backdrop of the Washington football team or the Cleveland baseball team and how many of them say, well, the, the pro teams do it. So if it's good enough for them, it's good. It's good enough for us. And um, and so we, we've heard that said over and over again, now that these schools are left hanging because Dan Snyder and, and, the, and the Cleveland baseball team. They lost have, that argument. Well, exactly. And yet they're still they're still digging in in such a way that is um, I mean, it, it, just, it just shows the level of hypocrisy. Yeah. And but it's going to become at some point untenable and, you know, socially untenable is un, unacceptable if you're you're bucking the tide you know, you're going to be seen as, as a, you know, just blatantly disrespectful. I mean, that's really, that's the only place this can go. And you see people digging in, in such a way that it's, uh, that they, they run out of arguments. And so now this, this latest push and you know, look, the, one of the, the biggest problems we have is, is 
there are a few native voices get put up on pedestals. The, the, the few native voices that are out there that are willing to say, oh, yeah, we like this. And, you know, and this is what I ran into back in, in Cambridge, New York. And, of course, this organization that calls themselves the Native American Guardians Association, which, you know, most of those guys are frauds. Um, but they've been pitching this educate, not eradicate. By the way, they spelled eradicate wrong in their filings. They they, used, <laughs> they, they, they spelled it I, with an I-R-R, which doesn't mean eliminate, but that's a whole other issue. But uh, I think they need to educate themselves. But this whole idea of pushing education as a solution to the mascot problem, when in the reality is the this idea of adding more Native history to a school's curriculum is uh, is continuing the problem. It doesn't solve the problem whatsoever. No, it doesn't. I mean, education, I mean, it sounds good on the surface. I mean, we all, we've all been saying that for decades as Native people. We but there's, there education. has to be a reason. The reasoning is behind it is where the problem comes from. Because if, if you're saying yeah. the only reason you're doing it yeah. is to justify the racist act that you, your school has been right. continuing for 80 exactly. years. Yeah. But again, there's that, that transparent, the disingenuousness of it being so transparent. But then they are in such a small minority that it's kind of a joke. Like, who takes them seriously except, you know, the... The conservatives that that rely on them. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, it's bound, it's doomed to fail. It's going to fail. It is failing, and and eventually, it's going to go away. But well, and the problem is, you do have pockets of, like you say, conservatism. You you have even even here in New York, what is considered a fairly liberal state. You have pockets of real right wing conservatism that digs in on this kind of thing. And the crazy part is. The same people who will decry, you know, having to retire their mascots by and they call it cancel culture. These are the same ones who would argue against teaching, well, even though it's, it's not taught in schools anyway, but this idea of critical race theory. So if your view is you don't want to teach anything that's going to make white people uncomfortable, which is essentially the argument against critical race theory, um, what what possible history would you entertain to teach? Right. All the stuff that just makes continues white people to feel good about themselves. Oh, look at, you know, they sell. Well, and you see those kinds of history texts. They're out there that celebrate achievements. And look at how far we've come compared to, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Uh, but, you know, you can uh, there's. And, you know, unless you tell the whole story, it's always going to be just more whitewashing. So in order to tell the whole story, you have to talk about the kinds of the, the kinds of policies and laws that the federal government and state governments have imposed on Native people that led to, you know, that are that have this uh, impulse to to eliminate our existence. Well, and, and I would argue still still exist. I mean, one, you know, this this push for assimilation is something that you know, obviously has a lot of ugly history to it, but it's also a very contemporary push. I mean, again, if, if I were to consider what a, what a school would teach, they would obviously do the same Pocahontas, uh, you know, Happy Little Pilgrims thing. But then, but they would also, if they were going to try to contemporize it at all, what they would praise is the effectiveness of assimilation. 
they would they you know they they throw a Jim Thorpe winning a medal for the United States or they they talk about code talkers or the high enlistment rate or they would cite you know look at we there Deborah Halland is the is the interior secretary so they would throw all of these examples of how successful assimilation is and it, and as much as they'd want to talk about enlistment rate they aren't going to uh, in the military they aren't going to talk about the folks at Sanding Rock fighting against militarized police. They aren't going to talk about those of us who are pushing for land back, those of us who are trying to expose the horrors of residential schools. None of that stuff would fit into these these pro-mascot, anti-critical race theory folks. Right, and they're not going to talk about the system of federal Indian law that maintains this relationship of domination with things like the doctrine of discovery, the trust doctrine, the doctrine of domestic dependent nationhood, because that is... The, it's the legal system that is the problem. It's that maintains the scaffolding of the impulse to eliminate native peoples and nations. So, um, you know, and this is this is the the core of it. But you know, the so the, it's it's paradoxical, right? Because on the one hand, you have this systemic and structural, um, you know, impulse to eliminate native people. But on the other hand, like the way we talk about it in academic terms about how settler colonialism is always, um, it's just always, it's the structure of the system that we all live in. But on the other hand, it's always unfinished because native people are constantly resisting it. So, um, so it, you know, that that's the thing, like you have to talk about both things. So, you know, I don't know, I wanted to talk about like kind of while we're on the topic of sports, and change and transformation. I don't know if you see have been seeing my posts, but for this last week, the stuff about surfing and surf culture. And um, what what we're seeing is we are making the work that we're doing, the work that I've been doing for years now is producing serious transformational change in the culture. And surfing as a sport is it's a lifestyle sport. And and so that means that it's it's actually like a subculture. So not only is it just a, uh, you know, this thing that people do for enjoyment, people attach their identities to it. And um, surfing has a long, very painful history uh, as being a tool of colonization, both in Hawaii and in California. And so um, and the way that the history has been written for a century has been very twisted, very whitewashed, very uh, sanitized. And um, and so, you know, we live and the sport itself happens on lands and in spaces of ethnic cleansing, especially here in California and in Cal in places like California and in the East Coast, the erasure of it, it always begins with the erasure of indigenous people. And so settler, the, these settler narratives, um, the, the condition of possibility is the disappearance of native people. And it, the same is true and with surf culture. Surf culture has been based on it, but it's the context for it. And, and surfing is so white. It's so uh, white in its makeup and the people that do it um, historically that um, they don't, they, you talk to, when you start, when I first started writing about this stuff and talking about it here over 10 years ago, people would, they would laugh at 
laugh at me. They would mock me and ridicule me for saying these things. But, um, but you know, now we're at a point, we're at this inflection point, this, this historical moment because of, I don't know, because of the, this, the, the, all these circumstances have led up to um, a, a moment here where we are seeing real change changes or at least an opening in people's attitudes where they're willing to hear hard truths. Well, part of it's acknowledging the, the uh, first off is acknowledging the conflict. I mean, even as you're talking about surfing, uh, I can't help but compare it to a little bit to what's happening with lacrosse and the fact that that trying to even put a native team in some of these uh, international in international play has become more and more difficult because it is, you know, essentially this is a sport, a, a native sport that's been taken over by universities and, and frankly, other countries. And so, I mean, it, it, it makes it very, very difficult for native people unless they jump in their ship completely. I mean, look, I understand that the surfing uh, was uh, um, was a part of the Olympics this year. But I dare say, try to get uh, native people to be able to represent their people in uh, in some of this international uh, in these international competitions, and it's almost impossible. You were either going to be Team Canada, you're going to be you know Team Mexico, or you're going to be Team United yeah, States. You're not going to be anything system, else. The whole system is founded on on a colonial framework, mm-hmm. right? That favors that privileges state the state system. But let me tell you. In the World Surfing League, so the World Surfing League, the WSL, is the is the the hub of the industry of surfing and controls um, global competitive surfing. For years, they they have allowed Hawaiian competitors to surf under the Hawaiian flag. So Hawaii is granted nation status in the World Surf League system. So when I don't know if you saw the story, but when the Olympics happened this year, Carissa Moore, who is, uh, you know, she's the top, the top women surfer, and she went into the Olympics as that, and a four-time world champion. And so she goes into the Olympics, and she she won the Olympics, but there was some press about the fact that they tried, they argued, they fought to get Hawaii to have its own standing as a nation. Of course, they were denied. Right. And so somebody wrote uh, a, an article about that. And, you know, they got a quote from Carissa Moore and she talked about how, I mean, it puts the athletes in a really, un, uh, like her in an uncomfortable position as somebody who's a native Hawaiian, like a Nash, Hawaiian nationalist. Um, as a competitor, it's, it's a very tough choice for a person like that, an athlete to be, to take us a, a hard political stand. Um, and so she, t- she mentioned that it was in this Huff Post article that it was, she was disappointed by it, but she didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. And she said, you know, I'm just happy to be here, you know, in this, you know, d- in the Olympics for the first time, she goes on to win um, the gold medal. But then you see Bill Maher. I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't. He, he just pissed oh, me Bill- off. He's, I can't stand him. I can't stand him. But you leave it to him to pick up on that. He's so racist. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I mean, and when it comes to native people, he is blind. I actually and stopped watching. I, I, I really couldn't watch yeah. his program anymore because yeah, I mean, there, there's no he, retort. There's never an opportunity for somebody to really, uh, you know, push back on some of the racist stuff that he says. So I can imagine yeah, how he dealt with just, this. He's not willing really to change, to change his mind, although he seems to have become less racist toward black people because he's been called out on it. Luckily, there's well, still a bunch of us that he can still go after, right? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, but the but the point still remains. So anyway, he did this, this, um, you know, this new rules thing that he does. Yeah. And he picked up on that, that HuffPost article and he mocked it. Like, you know, why, since when is you know, cultural appropriation and, you know, how do we know that whole surfing began? And whole, I mean, it's just bullshit stuff that he says. And, and, um, and so he just, you know, perpetuated this whole line that just makes him come off looking like a racist and anti-indigenous. So, you well, know, and, I mean, and don't leave out misogynist, misogynist either, because, you know, uh, you know, there's also he also has a tendency to, to really call down women all the time as well. Uh-huh. I don't watch him enough to even yeah. know because I can't stand him. I think yeah. he's just the, the liberal version of Bill O'Reilly. Yep, I, I, that's a good a good comparison. I agree. I agree. When Bill O'Reilly does it, it's disgusting. And when Bob Marr does it, it's disgusting. You know, this politics of disrespect. Fuck that. Yeah, no, I, and, oh, that's fine. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we can get away with that kind of thing. <laughs> but my point about all of this is that the, the energy is moving in a certain direction, right? And it's only a matter of time. And who knows what's going to be possible in the realm of international sport with, with the Iroquois nationals and, you know, playing under the, the Iroquois um, flag. So, you know, I don't, I don't discount anything. You know, at this point, I think, I think the world is so... There's so much change happening that um, it's only a matter of time. I mean, I'm going to be optimistic and say that it's only a matter of time because they're going to keep pushing back and they're not going to stop. Well, and I, you know, that's the way I take the the whole mascot issue as I'm and I get called in you know, uh, various schools uh, to, to help in the conversation. And, and I always begin with it's inevitable. It, whatever you've been doing for 80 years is not going to continue. So the question is, do you want to try to dig in and then, you know, cast your community or, or, you know, or even put your students, your kids in, in these circumstances? I mean, accept the inevitable fate that, that mockery and appropriation of native imagery for your non-native entertainment and amusement is not acceptable. And, Let's move on. I mean, and and we can still teach more history. We can still teach that that native people still exist. Uh, we don't. It's not an either or thing. Well, we, we're going to keep the the mascot and and uh, and add some things to our curriculum, or, or we get rid of the mascot and then you make native people disappear. I argue that the existence of native mascots has more erasure involved in it than removing native mascots. And, and I always come back to how much does a white person have to do, or how much do white people have to ignore to, to, to accept or, or to appropriate native imagery as their own? I mean, think about how much history. I mean, I, one of the things I always bring up, which is probably the, the best example of, of, of history being ignored, is 
is Abraham Lincoln's execution order for the, the Mankato, uh, Minnesota execution, the Code of 38. And the fact that that execution takes place the day after Christmas in 1862, which is about a week and a couple of days before the Emancipation Proclamation comes into, into law. I mean, if you can't tell the story of Ab Abraham Lincoln tell, uh, signing that execution order in the same, <laughs> that happens within the, the execution happens the same week essentially, as the Emancipation Proclamation, then you're doing a disservice to, to even calling yourself a history teacher. Well, yeah, but how many history teachers even know that history? Well, and a part of it, there's ignorance and then there's willful ignorance. So, and that's that's the other challenge. And you look, there are folks like you who are doing the good work. I mean, folks like Roxanne and and those of us doing podcasts and radio shows. Look, we're always trying to educate people. And you know, one of the things that I hear most when I, especially when I do live events where it's somewhat interactive, is, is I hear people say, I can't believe that I've been betrayed by my education in such a way. You know, they'll tell me how many masters or PhDs they have, and and yet I'm telling them something they've never heard before, like like Lincoln or or L. Frank Baum's genocide editorials or, or, or whatever. And, you know, I, look, I, I think about where you're at right now, and, and I know I've been in the area where you've got folks like Hunapera Sarah's name plastered on the on the highways and stuff like that. And and how if you're in California, how do you not tell the true history of somebody who has now been canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church for crying out loud? Sarah's days are numbered too. Like uh, you know, because even though the Catholic Church, the the so-called progressive pope, right, who refused to um, to not canonize Sarah because for whatever reason, I mean, you know, who knows? Like, like that's mystifying to me. Like the history is what it is, but, and it's very well documented how, you know, Sarah's role in the enslavement and, you know, extreme population decline of California and the abuse of California Indians. I mean, it's, it's unforgivable. And he's from uh, South my, America, this, this uh, existing pope. So he is more familiar with that history than perhaps, you know, any previous pope. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's mind boggling to me that 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 he he himself has dug in um, and refused to to not canonize Sarah. But um, it's it's just a, it's only uh, I think it's a matter of time. I mean, here in. California, like one thing that happened was, so we have in, in the California legislature is the only California Indian ever elected to it. His name is James Ramos. He's from San Manuel. He's the former chairman of San Manuel. And he had been fighting. He's been fighting. He's been fighting the Sarah issue and, uh, you know, for years, just like a lot of California Indians. And Last year, when the George Floyd thing happened and all those statues were being ripped down, like the Confederate statues and then also the colonial mm -hmm. monuments were being ripped down, one of them was the statue of Sarah at the at the state capitol. So this on the grounds of the state capitol um, was a you know this monument to Sarah, like the 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 holy you know, priests or whatever. And so they took, they took him down. And, um, and so, and of course the Catholics were pretty upset about it, but James Ramos shortly thereafter introduced a bill into the legislature, AB 338, 
that basically um, would prevent the replacing of, of that statue with another statue of Sarah. Mm. And that pa- that bill passed and just within the past couple of weeks. And so um, that's, that's some, that's a bit of progress. So now it will be illegal for the, the Sarah statue on the grounds of the state Capitol to be replaced. That's a little bit of progress right there. You know, we can- no, I wonder was, uh, was the argument um, more tied to a separation of church and state or towards the actual atrocities that he committed? Toward the atrocities. I, I'm not even aware of the argument of separation of church and state even entering the conversation. So it's just really about, um, you know, let's, we, the history is well established. And so now give, some, give California Indians a say in this. And, and, and what will happen is that monument will be replaced by a monument honoring California Indians. If you look at, I mean, I, we could take it all the way back to, you know, the mid 1800s and the abolition of slavery when, you know, people fought for the abolition of slavery and they got the Emancipation Proclamation. You start getting rights for black people, but it's at the same time that native people are being slaughtered on their, resi- on, on their homelands. So so there's ver- there's some, some very uncomfortable Uh, places where those things intersect. But eventually, you know, Native people start fighting for their rights there because Native people's rights, Native people's issues are not the same as Black issues. They're not. They're different. And so you you start seeing that these differences, you know, in the turn of the century, early 20th century, Native people form Society for, uh, for American Indians. And they're talking about um, the, the protection of lands. They're talking about freedom of religion. They're talking about, um, you know, the, the stopping of the allotment process and the, the boarding schools, like all these things that are particularly indigenous issues. So it starts there in the 20th century. Then mid 20th century, we see, um, you know, the black rights, uh, you know, the fight for civil rights for black people that starts um, really gaining traction first with Martin Luther King and, you know, the nonviolence movement, and then later with um, the, the Black Panthers. And so we see the rise of AIM be as on the heels of the Black Panthers because they're influenced by it, right? And so I think that we're, there's a, that pattern is being repeated, but, but, but like, but just like with the earlier movements, the, the American Indian movement were articulating t- something completely different than the Black Panthers were articulating, it was something completely different. Honor the treaties, leave us alone. Like, like Vine Deloria wrote in his book in 1968, Custer Died for Your Sins. Like what he said in that book in 1968, and he had this whole analysis, a whole chapter on it, talking about the difference between indigenous, what indigenous people want, what you know Indians want, versus what black people want. And, and, you know, and he was very clear about it and it was very critical. He was like, we're not fighting for the same thing. What we need is a national leave us alone agreement. Like leave us alone. Like black people are fighting for full inclusion into the state. Native people have never fought for that. 
I didn't realize how much uh, Frederick Douglass had subscribed to the whole manifest destiny. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, you know, I know. Um, uh, and as I'm reading more and more, I realized what an enemy to native people guys like Frederick Douglass were. I mean, so you're right. We are not and fighting for the same thing. The same, the same thing is happening right now, like since the George Floyd thing. And this is the work that I'm focusing on right now is saying like when we do this diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI work in our social spaces, in our educational spaces, um, we have to stop. There has to be an understanding that conflating Native people with, uh, you know, other ethnic minority communities who are fighting for full inclusion and rights in the state uh, it's not changed i'm glad that you're saying all this because uh, this is a point that uh, that i find isn't made strongly enough now that doesn't mean that we can't be allies with each other i mean and and that's that's the other thing it's just because we're not fighting for the same thing doesn't mean we can't support each other's fight exactly and and, exactly. and i think that's also one of the, one of the challenges look i was glad to see uh you know somebody like colin kaepernick take the argument beyond just the police violence against black people and then throw out the numbers about how uh, right. much death by cop is is a problem you know for for native people and he went to alcatraz and i was we haven't had enough um recognizable um celebrity type black athletes it step hasn't up been reciprocal. you see native people you know fighting for black lives matter but it's it's not reciprocated in the same on the same um level you know, black, the black rights movement supporting native issues. Like there's a disconnect there. And, and so that's, I think that's something it, because it's really, it's really touchy. It's really delicate to talk about these things, like how we need each other. But, you know, if you, if what you're fighting for is inclusion into the state, you, we have to have hard conversations about settler colonialism and what, what the state, is and its relationship to native people and what does that mean for everybody that wants that you know supports that um these state structures like we have to have their hard conversations yeah and, and um, they involve everything from from jurisdictional issues to uh you know to, to obviously you know the challenges you know that we face with uh with child services and and, and so many of these other things i mean you know health and all that other stuff but I think well, we have a thing. We have a thing here in California right now. This high-profile news story in in Manhattan Beach about the, this place called Bruce's Beach, and this is a story about how a black family um, had bought some property, some beachfront, you know, prime real estate beachfront property on this property, and then California with its own segregation policies because it happened here. Um, this family was was uh, they got their property taken away from them. And so the descendants of that family have been fighting to get that property back because they say they stole it from us, <laughs> right? And so this is really high profile and like nobody wants, where's the conversation about how does, how do you people, your family, how do they come to even have this property that was stolen property from native people? But like that conversation, like, is not being had. Well, and uh, I got to ask you, what's your thoughts on on how much religion creeps into into all of this? Because I mean, one of the things that we we oftentimes run up against is 
is the influence that the church has had on both the black community and, frankly, in many Native communities. I mean, I saw the Choctaw Nation passed a resolution a year or so ago declaring that the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma was a Christian nation. It's like, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a that's a critical question, and the influence of Christianity is still with us, unfortunately. I mean, colonization through Christianization was hand in hand. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, right. It's all they are. They they were complicit with each other. One needed the other. The state processes of colonization needed Christianity for that to happen, and all that brainwashing, all that trauma that was in in flat in you know in Oh, imposed i mean or, or uh, yeah, yeah on, on native but, children even yeah yeah and i and we're still working through that i mean if you think about how in black communities how um how it's really christianity that helps them cope with slavery right who people who have been taken out of their own homelands forced to new places abused you know for centuries they find hope, they find resilience, they find survival through through their church organizations, through those um, through those fellowships and through the religion itself. And, you know, and it and they and it be, evolves into this very cultural kind of thing, gospel and all of that stuff. And yet the church played such a significant role in the institution of slavery. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's mystifying to me, but yeah. I guess that's if that's all you got, I mean, and I know that not all black people fighting for black liberation are Christians. I know that. Um, but the vast majority of them seem to be. Well, and I also find that there's, there's that for for those that we are either working on or working against, sometimes the church can be the the place that they just that, that's the bridge too far for them and look I, I can't help but bring up somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg you know when I when I think about a woman even though she she was Jewish the idea that she would cite the doctrine of Christian discovery in the Oneida case out out here um, as her as the footnote and the, basically her footnote number one and then cite some of these other doctrines that are tied to that legal doctrines that are tied to the doctrine of Christian discovery. It, it, it amazes me because you would think, you know, and, and as, you know, the, the liberal left is, is always praising Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a champion for, for all of these rights, women's rights in particular, the language associated with the city of Sherrill versus Oneida is devastating. And it's coming from somebody who we would think would know better, right? I know. But she, and she came back. She had she it was either in her book or an article, but she was she did say she regretted it. And uh, but but it goes to show you how somebody, how a lawyer can reach to the highest level of the 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 American courts and still not know and still have no historical perspective or what I think I think is having not the, you know, not an incomplete um, historical analysis of the, you know, the relationship between the state and American Indians is just taken for granted that Native people, because if you unpack all of that, it's Native people were savages, they needed to be assimilated, they needed to be civilized, and that's that, right? And so that's the only way that you can justify something like the doctrine of discovery. 
Um, but the, the, the vast majority, I mean, it's the vast majority of all people who go through American law schools never take a course on Indian law. And yet you can't find any place in, um, in any of, uh, uh, in, in any study of law where there was a legitimate transfer of sovereignty from native people. And, you know, and look, even, even with the doctrine of Christian discovery, which, you know, argues that our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon, upon discovery. We know that there's language in things like the Canandaigua treaty, where the United States says we recognize the land is yours and we will never claim the same. So we know that there's, there's contradiction, but, but you're right. All these folks who study law will never confront that contradiction. I get invited to talks once in a while to legal groups. I was, I got uh, gave a talk to a group of appellate court state judges in Washington state la- earlier this year. And it used to be intimidating for me to talk as somebody, a non-legal person, but somebody who has a pretty good grasp of the history uh, and the, the foundations of federal Indian law. It used to be really intimidating and scary, but it's not anymore because I know that I know a lot more than they do. And so I can speak to these issues and con- contextualize these issues, um, you know, with with the history, and it's irrefutable. It's irrefutable, like because they they know they can't they can't contest it. Well, and one of the things that that I find interesting is that when you when you talk about the fact that this doesn't get confronted properly, one of the things uh, that I can't help but bring up is of all of the judges on the Supreme Court, it was Clarence Thomas who raised a different argument in a case called U.S. v. Lara. If you ever get a chance to look at it, it's, it's U.S. v. Lara. It's L-A-R-A. And it's, yeah. a, it, it's a case. Are you familiar with it at all? Yeah, it's just one of them. I can't say I remember what the well, what, case what the, is about. What, the, what it's about is, is that it was a guy who was beating up his wife. Uh, he was a native from one territory. She was from another. Um, there was a restraining order against him. He shows up there, uh, gets into a scuffle with a bunch of um, tribal police, uh, he gets charged with assaulting a tribal officer, serves 90 days. Then the feds come back and they charge him with assaulting a federal officer because one of them, or, or I guess it, one or more were, were BIA officers. Uh, and so he tried to argue that the um, double jeopardy laws should apply, but he couldn't be charged twice for the same crime. And so it was a weird thing where you had the U.S. prosecutor arguing that sovereignty was what was laid at the foundation of tribal police and tribal courts, not um, granting full faith and credit from the federal government. So you had basically you had the U.S. attorney arguing for in favor of sovereignty and you had the, the native guy arguing against it because of his own self-interest. But it was Clarence Thomas who raised questions about whether this idea that Congress um, was granted power in the Constitution to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. But what what he was arguing was that there was no foundation in the Constitution, including citing the the Commerce uh, uh, Clause of the Constitution. There there was actually nothing in there that grants, that that does anything to really grant that power to Congress. And, And what he said was that that needs to be addressed. I mean, now... Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he was pro-sovereignty. 
I think he wants some mechanism put in place to put this to rest because he says from a legal framework, there, there's nothing that, that, uh, that solidifies the U.S. position. He said the, the court has been schizophrenic is what he said in, uh, in his ruling. But, but of all people, you would have thought that that would have come from one of the liberal justices, but it doesn't. And, I, and, I, and the only reason I brought religion into that conversation because I think somewhere along the line, I think something outside of law is what guides some of these folks, and, and whether it's their religious beliefs or, you know, or, or just whatever you want to call it, their their indoctrination culturally, it 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 actually weighs higher even with these Supreme Court justices than the body of law that they're supposed to be considering. No, I I agree, and I think it's so deeply embedded and unconscious in, in the, the social landscape and the American mind. Um, and, and that's because it's there, the legitimization of the entire system rests on not having to go there. Like you, you know, I mean the, the, because it doesn't square, like, you know, the narratives of, of freedom, justice, and democracy, but the historical reality of genocide and, you know, indigenous elimination, they don't square. And, you know, the, the, the lies about American freedom and democracy went out at the expense of telling the truth. And that's a problem of legitimization. So like the, the state, the U.S. as a state founded on these principles is really not true. And so there has to be, it really has to be, um, uh, it it's becomes a process of legitimizing, you know, foreign presence on indigenous lands. I mean, that's, that's ultimately the bottom line. Like that's the, the un, uh, you know, the, the, you can't d- distill it down any further than that, right? That people come here, they violently take the land in all these ways, and then they have to justify and rationalize that taking in the name of democracy and, and freedom. And, you know, in order to do that, you have to you have to sidestep all of this other stuff. And I think that's so habitual, it's so structural and systemic that people don't even know they're doing it. They don't even know that the system is formed that way. Well, the only pushback I'll give to that is that you hear it in, in many times with the arguments, especially at the Supreme Court, where they, they almost don't want to address the facial challenges that are in front of them, right? Because they're more concerned about the repercussions that it, that it has, more the more longstanding and far-reaching repercussions. That tells me that they do know. And and so rather than like you said, don't go there, that's exactly what's happened with a lot of these cases. You know, so you have a situation where where courts don't want to address these issues because they understand in order for them to to really uphold their so-called system of law, they have to create a real problem um, going forward, and and we've and obviously this is a, always brought up when it comes to land claims. But again, I go back to to somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Oneida case. She cites, you know, both the system of um, latches, but also the doctrine of impossible, the doctrine of impossibility. And what she said was the doctrine of impossibility was that it was impossible for us to ever 
reassert jurisdiction on lands that we had lost, no matter how we had lost them, through fraud, theft, whatever, that to, for us to reclaim and, and reacquire lands and then assert our jurisdiction on it, she said that, is, that re represents the doctrine of impossibility, which is, which is an absurd legal proposition. It's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. I mean, you got to put a name, but, but that's part of what these people are trained to do. They have, up, you know, they've taken oaths to the Constitution. They have taken oaths to uphold the American system. And so that's what they're doing unconsciously or, con or, or consciously. They are, um, they are not tasked with, with, you know, taking a hard look at the, the system and how it comes to be that way. Um, because, you know, we can speculate about why, but, you know, they, their job is to, to, and it's partially the, the problem of the, of Western positivist law and the, the, you know, the principle of stare decisis, let the decision stand. Right. So, you know, I mean, they pick and choose when they want, they will overturn some precedents when they want, they overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. They overturned the Dred Scott decision, right? When they when they did the board versus you know Brown versus Board and you know this you know all of the those kinds of civil rights decisions. But they don't do the same thing with native with native rights case Indian rights cases, and you know so you have to you know Robert Williams of course calls that racist. I don't know that I would use that word. Um, but I think it's colonialist. Well, right? and, and again, I think <laughs> that's a tough one to parse where colonialism is not directly tied to racism. But <laughs> but but clearly you are talking about a, a, a people believing that their superiority entitles them the right to uh, to treat people lesser than them. That's the definition of, uh, of racism. So, I you know, I, I think that, that system, you yeah. got to uphold that system at all costs. Right. Right. Well, and and that kind of brings me back to 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 really what you know, where we start the conversation. And when I look at what schools, you know, and, and now we're talking about grade schools, not just high schools, and we aren't even talking about college here. We're talking about the most formative years of a, of a perhaps of a human being's life, their, their upbringing. Regardless what, what these children experience at home, what they are, how they are being formed and imprinted in school with things not just not even just the, the mascot issue, but even the way uh, history is taught and, and, the, and the things that, that are, are said to these children. I look in a history book, they still have the Pocahontas saving John Smith's life in, in, a, in a textbook today. This, the textbooks are still being used today. And of course, we know that that's not a true story. And, and, and it's misrepresented by, uh, in, in so many different ways. And yet, this is the imprint that these children you know, are faced with. I, I tell a story sometimes about um, going to a an, an opening of a um, um, an, of a business incubator close to the Seneca Nation territory here, and one of the the high level officials from the Department of Commerce was introduced to one of the more prominent Seneca business persons, and when he was introduced to him, he said, "Oh, what do you deal in uh, beads and leather?" I mean, so this is a grown man college educated who's been serving in 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 a governmental position for all of all of these years and he has this limited level of knowledge about what native people are today and and but that's all boring don't you think there's underneath all of that is a certain contempt well yes i do i i do but i think that contempt becomes so um 
uh, easy to to exude, I guess, because there is again we talk about racism. It's this idea that they could look down on somebody in such a way that even as they bring up a comment like this, they don't even they have need to consider to it. to validate their existence. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Period. But I mean, if, if, that's what but, it comes down to. But if, if, if kids are being constantly reinforced with the same idea that we either don't exist anymore, that we are only objects of the past, it, it, it makes it that much more of a challenge because like I said, when, when I do have the opportunity to, to tell somebody or teach somebody something that they've never learned before, I mean, I can see in their faces, especially when I'm in, in a crowd and I'm, and I'm sure you've, you've done plenty on the lecture circuit. You can almost see when you said something to somebody that they've never heard before or never even considered that, that it's not just what you said. It's how much it impacts everything else that they've, that they've been taught that they start to feel. And I've seen it in the faces of people. Oh yeah. I, I see it in the classroom every day. You know, I, you know, in teaching, college classes, you know, that it's, I've become accustomed to see, to the, the ire of students feeling anger that they're for the first time, knowing that they've been lied to their whole lives. Like this is very common that, you know, in our classes, our American Indian studies classes, they, you know, they know that they, they, they become aware that they've been lied to their whole life when they get confronted with like the whole, the real truth of things and they're pissed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly, you know, when, when, and I think the, the avoidance to address, you know, slavery as, as the main cause for like the civil war is, is, is a, a, a real perfect example of that. But, but certainly, I mean, look, I know, um, and I participated in them and I, and I know you've done them before this idea of doing land acknowledgements. I, I see the value in it, but you know, I know if, if we're talking about doing a land acknowledgement in some place like New York or in Manhattan, how do you acknowledge, do the land acknowledgement without acknowledging the massacres that took place on that land. And I think about the Dutch killing the Lenape right there in, in, the, in the 1600s. And it, it, it's not enough to do the land acknowledgement if we don't acknowledge what happened to the people who either were from there or, or what's happened to them as they try to maintain a presence on that land. I think land acknowledgement has to go beyond saying who used to live here. Right. No, I totally agree. And this is what we've been doing in the World Surf League. So just this week, we've, you know, we've been confronting all of these issues and, and, and I will actually be working with them to do some serious re-education around this because we're going to keep doing this in other places. Um, it, they wanted to do, an, a, this is a long story, but initially, originally they wanted to just do land acknowledgements. Um, and but the conversation has evolved over the past few years to this is not just land acknowledgement. This is about acknowledging the fact this is about respecting living communities, bringing them here. It's great to do opening ceremony. So we created these opening ceremony and they're going to do a closing ceremony. This is all happening right now, right this week, because the world championships are right now and it's in the, the town where I live. So we did these opening ceremonies. Um, we had our elders of the Hashiman community here been treated with the utmost respect. And in my, in my, um, I'm the mediator for all of this, for, for these actions. And, and I have said to this organization, commercial organization, 
Um, I have said that if you want to have this relationship, because they said we want to have a relationship with the with um, the native people. And I said, OK, great. Then if you want to have a relationship, you have to give back. You have to do something. You have to show your respect in a tangible way. And and, you know, unfortunately or not, I mean, it, you know, the limitations are, you know, financial, they're fiscal. And so, you know, there's and so they they have pledged. Um, a gift, a, a financial gift that will have substantial meaning for that community, for these, this local native community. And, um, and so that's, that's a real step in the right direction right there. And if we can maintain, if they can institutionalize, if the WSL can institutionalize these values, institutionalize um, the knowledge of the history of what happened here and how we got to this point and how disrespectful the whole thing is, um, you know, that's, these are all little, little baby steps that we can take on, on a grander scale to, to create more meaningful systemic change. Well, and I think land acknowledgement has to also acknowledge things like land back, the, the, the effort that native people are, are, are having to reacquire land, but also, you know, and I, and I think about like radio and television and theater and film and, and so much, you know, you, it's not enough to land acknowledgement if we're not being provided space within some of these, these things that may not be physical spaces, but they may be spaces in the airwaves or, uh, you know, on, on the internet. We do need to um, have a space for our voices uh, and our presence to be, uh, to be acknowledged, not just that we used to exist, yeah, one, but one thing leads to another, right? And so one step leads to another. Native people, the only reason we have survived is because we just kept going. We just kept pushing. And it's no different now than it was before. Our our own knowledge about history, our own, our own arguments, our own, uh, all of this stuff is more sophisticated than ever. We know how to fight with the tools of the colonizer. We know their language. We know how they how they think, and that's what it that's what it's uh, you know required for us to accomplish anything. For us to simply survive and maintain what little land bases we have now. So, so you know, we just keep we just keep moving forward and be become educated in their systems and use their systems to our advantage. Thank you, Dina, for joining me on Let's Talk Native. As always, if you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can follow the show on Twitter at Let's Talk Native, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV. And you can join our Facebook group page. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. Yo, we still were standing rock before I had a name To erase the identity, all the names have changed But it don't matter where you are or where you stand The fact remains that this is still native land The tragedies are listed in history How justice still hasn't been served remains a mystery Blood flows from the schools to the slaughter To the missing and murdered mothers and daughters The war club was handed down for centuries It had a purpose but fulfilled that eventually But now instead of violence and casualties I slay injustice with my mic ever so casually But we can't even Live. We can't even heal. New day, old wounds, same medicine wheel. If I tell you my pain, show you my scars, I hope you see it.